Off the Ball. Find us on Twitter at Off the Ball. News Talk 106 to 108. We're going to turn our attention in the meantime to reviewing the Sunday papers. You're very welcome if you're just joining us on Facebook Live. So we're joined by Kleena Foley, a journalist and broadcaster, presents the Off the Bench podcast, available in all good podcast stores. And we have Andy McGeady here as well, journalist and uh, broadcaster. You're both very welcome. Thanks for coming in. Good morning. Thanks, Joe. Afternoon. Guess what's on the back pages then? So uh, plenty about the rugby, as you might imagine, in the uh, star. Firstly, beaten, battered and just not good enough. Schmidt blast after, quote, most disappointing defeat, as Johnny Sexton is pictured uh, looking on as he waits to applaud the English team off. You can imagine Johnny Sexton's face as he's doing that. And then Ole planning for future. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is um, giving his opinion on targets that should be uh, brought in to Manchester United from a transfer point of view. Uh, Sunday Mirror then, red roasted. It's a picture of Manu Tuilagi giving Henry Slade a hug after one of Slade's tries. And it's called a reality check by Joe Schmidt, the result yesterday. Meanwhile, Rafa in tune. Uh, there's talk of Rafa Benes extending his contract at uh, Newcastle after a decent January transfer window. Uh, meanwhile, Sunday World, picture of Josh van der Fleer looking on, hands on hips. Silence of the slams. Champs Ireland humbled by Ald enemy as Schmidt admits it's a reality check in a picture of Owen Farrell there applauding the fans at the Aviva Stadium yesterday. Similar theme in the sun. Uh, Joe admits that Ireland were bullied is the headline in Sun Sport. There's a picture of Gary Ringrose uh, trying in vain to stop Henry Slade going over the whitewash. Ireland 20, England 32. Uh, Joe Schmidt admitted Ireland got bullied after they lost their first Six Nations home game on his watch. Such a pity for Schmidt, really. It was an extraordinary home record in the Six Nations for it to go uh, at the death. And then uh, Sunday Times, three quarters of the page, fantastic picture there. Or certainly if you're an English fan, it's uh, that picture again of Gary Ringrose trying in vain to stop Henry Slade. Reality check is the headline. And Sunday Independent. Johnny Sexton is the picture, pensive. Um, rubbing his chin and you suspect it's at a moment where the reality of the situation uh, has dawned that England are going to win this game. Reality check as England steamroll Schmidt's men is the headline there. Ireland ambushed, uh, the main headline. And then finally, Mail on Sunday, Ireland crushed. These <laughs> headlines. Uh, grand uh, plan in tatters as ferocious England bully and bruise their hosts into uh, submission. Ireland 20, England 32. God, the, the language is very emasculating, isn't it? The, the, the Sunday world couldn't resist it on the front page strap. It's um, Ireland and Deep Schmidt. <laughs> <laughs> They've been waiting years They've to been do Somebody's been waiting ages for that. <laughs> so, uh, we'll start with the rugby. There are some fantastic other pieces in the papers today, I assure you, and we uh, will get to them, but we'll start with the rugby. Where do you want to start? There's, a, 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 there's just a line in Dennis Walsh's match report that I really, really loved. I mean, you know, you, you buy papers to read writers, I think, sometimes. You know, we can get, we can get stuff online now, but sometimes you just want to read a good writer. And he has this brilliant line, and he says, um, in the last minutes, uh, Ireland had possession, they had the ball, he said, but it was in their own 22, and they were like a man trying to light a cigarette with a damp match. And it's just a brilliant image because you could actually, that was the desperation that was on their faces when they had that possession. They were just like, they didn't want it. it they could do nothing with it. Futility about those periods of <laughs> There really was, yeah, yeah. Um, Peter O'Reilly's good piece, I think, in the Sunday Times. Um, 
you know, uh, it's really saying, you know, stats are nonsense. He goes through all the stats of the game and, and really exposes that stats are nonsense. Um, he's a great line as well. He says, um, the, battle, the battle of the Biff isn't measured by the status. You know, and size does matter, and size and fitness sometimes matters. You know, if if all else is equal, and mm -hmm. they were severely outmuscled, and uh, you know, badly. It was amazing, and that that aspect of the game was talked about a lot during the week. Tuilagi and the Vunapola brothers, yeah. but it was never talked about in terms of alarm. It was just a sense that well, Ireland will have to plan for this, and we'll have to make allowances for this, but they'll be fine on the night. And then it turned out that wasn't so easy. I'd have thought it was even more than that. I'd I have thought, thought it was, it was more than that as almost well. Almost as if it was, you know, some of the Warren Gatland Welsh teams. You're going, well, they're very big. They're out of ideas. Yes. Yeah, it was right. almost the sense, yeah. And it turned out it, there was a lot more going on. And I think um, even though, yes, the especially the first 10 minutes, England turned up to really, really test Ireland physically and mentally with what they brought. Mm. Um, and certainly uh, Joe Schmidt and others have made the comparison to the uh, that New Zealand game, which was particularly nasty in 2016. Mm. Uh, they brought a lot more to the table. I mean, that first try they got inside 90 seconds, it was very, very good. And mm. there was a lot that England did yesterday that was absolutely superb and that was reminiscent of some of the very best Joe Schmidt teams. The way they managed Ireland around the field, Ben Youngs was phenomenal mm. at nine. Absolutely Brilliant. superb. Stephen Jones in the player ratings. Ben Youngs, seven out of ten. His box kicking was off theme. <coughs> I don't get it. I don't get it. Honestly, it, I don't know what game he was watching. I ben Young's was I couldn't understand his ratings. And if you look at all the other ratings, everybody else gives um, gives yeah. gives ben Young's really good. He gives McAvinapola, which I've never seen. He gives him ten out of ten, which I've actually never seen so in, a, in a rating before. Mm. Yeah, yeah. McAvinapola, ten out of ten. Joined the top class of scrummagers. Work rate was unbelievable. His greatest game. I believe he originally put in fifteen out of ten, <laughs> but the sub editor said no. <laughs> it's in, it's interesting Cup. to read the English perspective on it, though, isn't it? Because uh, their perspective is, so this is what England have been trying to do for the last year and a half, and this is what Eddie Jones, and now finally we're seeing the results, you know. Their reading of it is that, you know, a lot of the bad stuff that they saw last year was because England were putting in this really heavy training, and that now it's it's all been brought, yeah, brought I, to I, I really think there's a bit of revisionist history. There is a little bit, there is though, yeah, yeah. I, I yeah. would have but said... But it's an interesting, it's interesting the way their take on it is different than ours, I think. Possibly. Oh, they're immediately jumping on it. Um, I would have said that with the Stuart Lancaster England teams, we did see a steady progression um, until their ill-fated World Cup. Yeah. I, I don't see that with this England team. Now, I remain to be proven wrong. If they keep this going, and if they, in fairness to them, if they keep certain combinations intact and, 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 and healthy. And fit. And yes. I mean, Itojo is a classic example. Now there's a worry about him next week with that knee. Mm. Um, you know, they, they lost both himself and Cruz yesterday. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, and we have to say then, we were also without people. And it, you do wonder about the likes of losing, the likes of Tyburn and everything. Um, it's interesting. But there's so many different takes on it. Mm. Um, I, I, I think that I thought Peter Riley's piece was a good piece um, in terms of, uh, you know, he's balanced about it, I think. And he, he, the irony in England's physical dominance yesterday is that it flips all the theories about the respective groups of players, the, the way the groups of players are finished. So he's saying in England, the Gallagher Premierships always argue to be too hard on them, too physical. Um, and that's the problem that they come in, they're direct when they come into the England camp. Yet they look brilliant yesterday. And yet Ireland were off in Portugal for a week, or whatever it was, a week and a half. And they came in and didn't look as if they were physically ready for it. Mm. So it's interesting. That's what he's looking at. I thought that's a good point. There was an attitude about England, wasn't there? Uh, oh, yeah. Like there was an intent about them. The only time you really saw Ireland respond in any kind of way to the 
the more peripheral stuff, but it's 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 kind of a telling thing. Peter Romani got in a bit of a pushing yeah, yeah. with Sinclair, I think. It was, it was quite late, though, wasn't it? Was, yeah. I mean, it was, That's it, what that I thought. Stage, I thought it was very late. You wanted that in the first five minutes. And also, um, Neil Francis is the only one who makes the point about the England team uh, going into a, a circle at halftime. Yeah. They went into that circle and Farrell laid down the law at halftime, yeah. which is really interesting. And I just think they showed that they had better leaders yesterday, apart from everything else. Obviously, it's hard for halfbacks to operate at, at their normal level when they're not getting the protection. You know, everything kind of went wrong mm. or went wrong for our nine and ten yesterday, you know, unusually for us. Mm. But it asked loads of questions about, you know, where is the support there? Were there people that could have been brought in earlier? I thought some of the substitutions were late as well. Mm. Too laggy adds subtlety to power on his return. So this is Stuart Barnes, who I always think is such a great communicator and he can boil down complex ideas uh, very quickly and simply, and that's one of the reasons I always have a look out for him. So you mentioned that first try, Andy, and so Barnes says it took less than two minutes uh, for Tuolagi here to make his mark on Ireland and the match. First line out, Jamie George throws straight over the top to Tuolagi. He powers onto the throw. He collides with Josh van der Fleer, so effective against New Zealand, on the gain line. The open side, van der Fleer, is a tough man, but England's inside centre and England's inside centre couldn't quite come up with one of his legendary busts. But he was over the gain line and England were moving quickly into their phase play, like Ireland at their best. Then the same attack seconds later, Tuolagi blasts into the wider defence, draws two tacklers. Ireland, the arch slowdown merchants at the breakdown, not only cannot prevent quick ball, but they find themselves one man down. 14 attackers on their feet against 13 defenders. That's what the Tiger gives you. That almost looked like a Joe Schmidt move. Didn't it? Yeah. It really did. Yeah. Mm. The, you know, having the balls to do that so early in the game, straight over the top to a guy coming in, like his first next ne Six Nations game for six years, um, and then immediately identifying the overload on one side. Um, Earls, Keith Earls had been ta had targeted immediately on the first kickoff. Honestly, I was sitting above that in the ground. I was there as a civilian. It was quite wonderful, mm. apart from the result. Yeah. Um, but Earls hadn't looked completely right getting up from that. He was sucked in and they took it fantastically well. The first 90 seconds caught Ian McGeegan's eye as well. He's writing, uh, first 90 seconds, two laggy, Sinclair carried twice, Vunapola once. England got all their big ball carriers into the heart of the action. That then allowed Owen Farrell to pick an outstanding pass to Elliot Daly, who put Johnny May away. Incredibly well executed, set a marker for what was to follow for the rest of the game. And on Henshaw, he said, uh, rather than exposing Henshaw under the high ball, England made a conscious decision to test his decision-making and his timing of when to cover the channels. And he said, we saw an example of that when uh, Farrell kicked through from a line-out and Henshaw had to double back to get the kick. Um, he says he actually did very well not to be carried out over his own try line but it came from Farrell recognising Henshaw was already on his way to the open side. Yeah. Even with the second try, he says, although it was Jacob Stockdale's mistake, Henshaw should have been much closer to him. He hadn't covered over. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. Bernard yeah. Jackman makes um, a, yeah, a point along the same point. lines. Yeah, yeah. It's on Independent where he's yeah. talking about what Rob Kearney gives you is yeah. also about something which has nothing to do with him being on the ball or near the ball, but his, his management of yeah. the two wings, Position. having them on a string, mm. on a little pendulum. And He's saying there's so much he does off the ball we don't see, you know, yeah, that positioning, yeah. that knowledge of where to be. But I think that, I think we have to view the Robbie Henshaw selection in the long term here. But this is something which has been mooted for quite a while, that Schmidt has an eye on him as a mm. 15. Rob Kearney's not getting any younger. Even in a World Cup year, yes, Rob Kearney's still Ireland's number one fullback. But what if? And I think that's, that's what we have to view this in. So yes, this was a hell of a learning day for Robbie Henshaw. But 
I wouldn't think that this experiment is over. I, I thought it was really interesting yesterday, even on TV um, with you, um, uh, two people had completely wrong. Nogara was like, leave Henshaw there, you, you need to let him settle, let's see what happens. Yeah, you and don't throw a man overboard after yeah, one game was fine. Yeah. Which I would have thought you possibly could in, in terms of there are only so many games in Six Nations. It's a very quick, short tournament. You mm. have to get things right very quickly. Mm. Shane um, Horgan thinks And then Shane Horgan was the opposite. Yeah. Shane Horgan was no changes. Best 12. Yeah, and I, Hugh Farley is good in the mail today, um, mail on Sunday. Um, specific issues, he said, uh, yesterday confirmed it's not yet time, same, same point to bid farewell to Rob Carney. Robbie Henshaw gave all at full back but there appeared to be positioning uh, issues for, which England you know, found plentiful plays to exploit. Yeah. It, w it was interesting, um, I mean, it became very prescient I suppose but in the first 15 minutes at one o'clock of the show the Henshaw thing was being discussed you know, and, and Horgan, Shane Horgan had his reservations then as well and, and um, we were saying we'll have to see how it goes and Matt Williams didn't like the look of it either. Um, and then we raised the issue with Simon Zebo. And Shane Horgan said, I do not understand in a World Cup year why he's not in the squad. Okay? Just don't understand it. Mm. And Ronan O'Gara then listed off, well, look, it's difficult. And you've got, you know, you've got Conway and you've got Anderson and you've got uh, Robbie Henshaw now in the mix and you've Carney and you've all these other players. But I do think Zebo's better than them all. <laughs> yeah. And um, it hung in the air. And, and it was, hanging it was in less the air even, even to bring in Carper yesterday. I know they were in trouble, but you were thinking, well, you know, what have you got to lose here, if you like? Do you know mm. what I mean? Why not have a go? Um, Going back so to the um, the nastiness angle to it. Oh yeah, um, you you liked a piece, Andy Bull, was it? And yeah. Andy Bull, yeah, and because the, there is in the there Telegraph, is, it's in the Observer. The Observer. Um, so he is talking about this this nasty angle, but in a fairly controlled way, and just it's it's a nice. It's in the the intro paragraph. <clears throat> they are an ugly bunch, nasty, brutish, and sharp. A pack of burly bullies with a couple of whipped quick sidekicks making mischief around the fringes. They have the strength to beat you one way, the speed to beat you another, and they will be hell for everyone except their own fans. That, to me, is a very good summary mm. of what we saw yesterday, because it encapsulates both what they did in terms of a bullying, but also that quickness of thought and execution yeah. to take advantage. Mm. Um, it's the first time we've seen it from this England side, as in to that extent, but um, he also makes the point that England were playing with fire because they did, at times, go over the top. I mean, the Curry challenge on Earls, I thought, was ludicrous. Yeah, uh, but the Atoje one could have been, if you would wonder if, if he hadn't gone, would, would Atoje have got a yellow card? Do you know I, what I mean? I, I mean I, honestly, I, I, I saw it at the time, I didn't think Atoje's was that bad. I thought the Atoje, Atoje one actually a, could have been we, a yellow. We did um, a half hour afterwards on Virgin Media Sport, and that's where it came up, because we took the Joe Schmidt press conference and he brought it up, and then he came back to the studio. Yeah. And Shane Horgan and Matt Williams thought the Atoje one was uh, okay. Yeah. And Ronald Garrett thought it was a red. I, well, I thought it was a yeah. <laughs> you know, or certainly an orange. And his argument was, have a look at it again. You, they both have eyes on their ball, on the ball, but Atoje is about three, four feet ahead of the ball. Yeah. He just crashes into Earl's. The well, ball is three, very, four feet behind him. His knee was dangerously yeah. high as well, and like knee into chest or head was and very, very I think O'Gara convinced them by the end, actually. <laughs> like, you do allow for, look, a player does get ahead of the ball to catch it that way, yeah. but there's been ahead of the ball and there's been three, four feet ahead of the ball and, I, there's, and there's a, there's a been, duty of care there, for your There's also been player. reckless. There's, a, there's yeah. a thing about like being, being reckless going into a tackle. I just thought he was physically reckless. I thought he might say that Tom Curry was already in the sin bin Well, the that's time. what I'm saying to you. Yeah. I think if Curry hadn't been in the yeah. sin bin, I think that one could have been a yellow. But anyway, look, at that's neither here nor there. Uh, there's a great line actually um, uh, from Jones. I hadn't seen it before, but apparently in the press conference afterwards, he said um, about the kicking game, he said we didn't target anybody. Um, Brendan Fanning has in Sunday time 
times. Um, it didn't matter who they had at fullback, they could have had Lance Armstrong at fullback. <laughs> the intense, oh, intensity really? is... Paul Cambridge in the press conference suddenly <laughs> saying, what? Yeah. <laughs> so um, I think it does raise questions, and Hugh, Hugh Farley, a few people ask it, is about... Like, what I, didn't, I know they didn't get the platform to do it yesterday because they were physically out-muscled, yeah. but like, there was no angles of running, there was no creativity. There was, that's what I just mm. thought, it was very much straight, just, and, and Hugh Farley says it, um, yesterday proved, proved the tactic of maintaining possession to the predictable carries of CJ Can Stander and his fellow forwards is limited when faced with the muscle mass and ferocity of defences like England. Stander was tossed about like a beanbag. Yeah. And if Route 1 isn't working, it's time to consider a more nu nuanced Route 2. And he says, like the likes of Jack Conan, maybe. But it was, it was interesting, I think. There just didn't seem to be any creativity there, yeah, even no, when we were well, near their line. Well, Neil Francis, as is always the case, Ireland looked to their coach. The headline in his piece is England figure us out with rugby science and attitude. As is always the case, Ireland looked to their coach to see if he could conjure up some game-changing tactics. But plan B seemed to be to continue with plan A. It was. Yeah. Uh, that's a slight worry, isn't it? Yeah, now, that's what was Peter O'Reilly makes the point, and, and various others do as well, like you're talking about the fact that Peter Romani still nursing uh, sore ribs after the knock yeah. he took in Gloucester. Uh, Sean O'Brien, you, oh, sorry, you may wonder why Sean O'Brien wasn't brought off the bench sooner. Quite clearly, they didn't feel he had minutes in him. Yeah. Uh, he said Josh van der Fleer can still look a little boyish in this company, and then we were undercooked in a few crucial positions as well. Most obvious case, Connor Murray saw him struggle against Exeter, and he said previously Johnny Sexton has returned from lengthy layoffs and found his top gear immediately. Yesterday, he made er er errors that will annoy him intensely and uh, lists out a few. And even Stockdale, like Stockdale, you can't, you can't keep trying to do the same thing. Like I just thought he wasn't offloading early enough at times yesterday. He was trying to carry the ball too much. It was very obvious when, when they got the ball, especially in the first half, they got the ball to Stockdale in space yeah. with a player outside him twice. I think the first time yeah. was Ringrose, the second time might have been O'Mahony. Yeah. And it was very obvious that that support player had no idea what Stockdale was going yeah. to do. Yeah. None. So is, is Stockdale, in your opinion, more of an instinctive he's finisher a, he's a as finisher. opposed to a, he a is ball player? And and I don't mean a brilliant that, finisher. Yeah, yeah let's, let's not say that's a bad thing. You have to have more to game than that. Yeah. Yeah. It just, yeah. in, in that moment, like the first time it took a really good bit of rooking from uh, Ringrose yeah. to make sure the ball came back. And it just, again, you're looking at a, a time where Ireland did actually do a lot of things right to get the ball to the right area of the pitch, two people with gas, and then nothing really happened. Mm. I mean, I would make the point that, uh, David Welsh makes the point here in his uh, companion piece on page three of the Sunday Times. When viewed in hindsight, Ireland's response to England's Bringland opening was impressive. They regrouped. They did. They were I mean, ahead, yeah. yeah. The, fir the first, I'd say, it must have been from minutes, say, 10 to 25, give or take. Ireland played Joe Schmidt rugby. They bored England into submission. Mm. And it was good. It was fine. They did all those little things well, and you could see England were going, ah, damn it, okay, this is... But, but in fairness to England, they then regrouped, mm. and Ireland did not have an answer in that game. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm not sure I buy the validity of anyone saying that people were undercooked, because if they're... Ireland's depth is good enough that if your first, if your first choice guy isn't 100%, We've actually got other players that could come in. But you can see why pre-match pre nobody was making these points because in the past, and in particular, Henshaw has come back from long layoffs and been excellent. Yeah. Sexton has come back from long layoffs and been excellent. So They've been known for it. It's easy for us to sit here now and today and say, well, you know, they were undercooked. But certainly on Saturday morning, everybody had faith that Sexton and Henshaw would, well, whatever about Henshaw, but that they would deliver sharp performances. Well, I think Ireland's, Ireland's best fly half yesterday was probably Bundyaki. You know, Bundyaki's an interesting one. 
Uh, I see here, it just kind of caught my eye on Stephen, Stephen Jones. Jones gave him 8 out of 10, yeah, yeah but it, I wouldn't have thought he was 8 out of 10 and he was a lot less than a lot of the other uh, rankings as well. A great man for team morale, Stephen Jones, 8 out of 10, powerful, exuberant, a real handful for England. Um, he said it on air as well, so he's on the record of saying it. Like Shane Horgan would often look at Bundyaki passing. Mm. And it's just something to look out, out for, you know, too often for him it goes slightly behind the man, yeah, back shoulder, yeah. it slows things just down. There, the yeah. way a sexton pass seems to invigorate an attack because it's right in the money and it allows the player to run onto it. Bundyaki was getting on a huge amount of ball in that first half, but actually there's an argument his passing isn't up to it, that he's more of a ball carrier as opposed to a passer. It, it, I think, for me, I, I, I like when you have that second person taking the ball on. You sometimes see Gray Ringrose take that as first receiver as mm. well because it gives the defence a lot to worry about. Yeah. And you've got a player standing both sides who can take it on. Or even if they're both on the same side and suddenly it does go to Aki first. It's something he's always done for Connacht, for example. Mm. Um, but uh, It's passing? It's passing. It's, he's got a good range of passing. Mm. There's a bit of a wind-up. So perhaps when he's in there all the time, the defence knows what's coming. Mm. You know, um, Conor Murray's passing I thought was a little more of a word. There's a couple of those really that really don't really make that point. Yeah, 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 yeah. really poor. Francis makes that point actually, yeah. yeah. And he slows the game. I mean, he, he's brilliant when he's brilliant. But I always think if he's not getting the protection, he slows the game down so much that they're on the back foot. Yesterday it was very, very slow at times. You know, I know they weren't they weren't allowing them to rock clean ball, but it was very slow. Everything was well, very slow and pedestrian. But it, I don't think we'd be saying that if those kicks had been challenged effectively by Irish chasers. But the chasers, yes, I thought it was Ireland's worst kick chase game in a long time. Yeah. Yeah, but I don't even think the quality of the kicking. I mean, mm. sometimes he's brilliant. He gets great heights and things. You get after it. I just thought yesterday he, he just looked out. I mean, you know, I think it's a shock when if you're used to yeah. being protected at that level and suddenly they're piling over the top, literally yeah. at you. You know, and you have so little space. It was very interesting in the stadium as well. The very first opportunity in the first couple of minutes he had to launch a box kick, and it's always fairly obvious when he's about yeah. to do it. First of all, and Schmidt referenced, there were a load of white bodies in front of Murray, as in, yep. if you were to chase that um, kick, you were going to have to almost die. You were going to be stopped, right? Some of the blocking was blatant. Sure. Well, on the, uh, definitely. Yeah, they they got away with a lot of it. That's the lay of the land. <laughs> it is. And you, you have to react, I suppose. That yeah, could happen to you. Yeah. But then equally, it was very noticeable, um, and all the lads in the studio kind of called it as well, um, once it was slowed down enough that England were set, who was in the backfield? There were only two or three players in the backfield. Billy Vunapola. Yeah. So the yeah. first time Murray looked up, he saw, I presume it was Elliot Daly, but all that was looking back at him was Billy Vunapola in the first minute saying, give it to him. Yeah. And, yeah. and there's a lot of Billy. And there's a lot of Billy. <laughs> yeah. And actually Murray put that one, that one deliberately out for touch. Mm. They were like, that was a good move. Um, but there were, there were so many times where he did look up and once England were set, it was Billy saying, please. Give it to me. Yeah. And I thought and it was difficult. I, I thought it was interesting. Um, uh, Schmidt, Schmidt afterwards, you know, when he was saying that, you know, he was hinting really that they got away with a lot of illegality. And I think what he was really talking about was the amount of illegal blocking under the high ball. Some of there the There was blocking, a ton of it. Like. The blocking lines were, it actually got comical, where you could, you could see it They were literally in live. circles, half circles around. Yeah. There was a semi-circle <laughs> protecting the guys. OK, I don't know. There's a lot going on there. And it is up to, you're right, Joe. I mean, it is up to... Both teams are on the field, there's a relationship with the referee, it's up to the Irish captain and sort of officer corps to have a word with Carasaith and say, listen, we can't get to the ball. It's that simple, we cannot get to the ball. Yeah. So, you know, it looks wrong to me, but, you know, I'm just telling you we can't get to the ball. Because there were places where, yes, on another day, Ireland would find a way. And if maybe that involves taking out a blocker and actually conceding a penalty deep in English territory, but just to make the point to the referee, we well, yeah, can't get there. This is what's happening here. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, if, you're, if rugby is your thing, you will have 
lots of reading today, yeah. as you might imagine. Joe, before we move on, could I just make a point? Um, Please, the, yeah. uh, in the Telegraph, there's a good column here, the Jonathan Kaplan column, on the referee's view of some of those decisions, because it's not about whether they were right or wrong, but it's about the process. And one of the things he goes into is about the, um, the disallowed try for England, the Macavunipola one. Now, for my money at the time, I thought there was a try all day long, yeah, first I time up. Yeah, I thought it was as well. Um, but it was disallowed for double movement. But the point Kaplan's making here is that he said, I've heard in the grapevine that refs have been asked to take matters into their own hands more often and rely less on the TMO than they have in the past. So Gar says immediately awards try. Uh. But what happens is that the referee has to let the referee know if they think they've made a mistake. So what Kaplan is saying is that the referee is now looking at that replay, being told by a fellow official, You're wrong. You're wrong. Okay. Okay, and he's looking at it through that lens, which I think is an interesting point. Yeah, that happened in the Scotland game as well. There was was it Hogs that was given, and then there was an element of doubt. And yeah, they went back. But, or the, but the TMO didn't ask for a view. The, the TMO said it's fine. It's fine. And Just actually, the, the funny thing about that is that that's how, and it's only it's only a lim very limited thing. But that's how Hawkeye works in the GA, mm. where he gets word to say. You're wrong. Look at it. We yeah. have to look at that. So yeah. the ref is told that's wrong. You, you so it's just to speed up the again. process as opposed to having to go every time. It right. is. It's yeah. interesting how quickly he said that wasn't a forward pass. Oh, with the other, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, yeah. And then and then looked at the other element of it. Yeah, the offside. But then there was a, there's a, there's a, there's a footage it seems which shows it may well have been offside. Yeah, because it's from the last. Match. It's from the back foot, yeah. isn't it? So but they didn't it did look. Seem to they have didn't look. It from the other side. No. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I don't know. If <laughs> anyway, for my money. that wasn't what lost is the match. No, I no. think so. I think we're all agreed on that. <laughs> yeah. So um, a piece everybody really um, enjoyed is about St Enda's GA club. This is Dennis Walsh in the Sunday Times. Yeah. So they're through to an intermediate All Ireland final. Uh, last week, Joe Brawley wrote a fantastic piece about this. Oh. Joe Brawley's piece last week, I was in tears nearly by the yeah, end. It was, it was really, it was very powerful. really powerful and really emotive. Um, isn't, wasn't it? Just a yeah, beautiful no, it was, piece. It was class. Yeah, like uh, when he's good, he can be so good. And when he knows the area like that, it was a beautiful, beautiful written piece. Yeah. But I like this piece this week because, um, like, if people don't know it, um, they're, they're a GA club in the, in the north of Belfast City, um, technically Den Gormley. But they have had just... I mean, during the Troubles, they had the most horrendous history mm. um, of people being, their members being murdered. The club constantly be burnt down. Um, just a phenomenal history. So for them, and actually, um, the fact that they're in the All-Ireland now as well, the guy who came off the bench in their last game, wasn't that it? You'd probably have it there. Yeah, yeah. it's page very 10. good. Yeah, I'll just hold up a picture for Facebook uh, live viewers. How St. Enda's put the Troubles behind them? And there's a picture there of the St. Enda's captain, James McCauley, and the club chairman, Stephen Jennings, with a photo of Jerry Devlin. And he was shot dead 20 years ago. Um, so it looks like Dennis Walsh has gone up. He has. Uh, He's clearly gone up. spent time yeah. with them. Uh, Joe Brawley wrote about it last week when they reached the final. So they're all Ireland. They're Crow Park band. Um, and, you know, Next weekend, yeah. Dennis talks about going to the club and you see uh, a plaque with Paul Pierce's oration at O'Donovan Ross's graveside. And then there is a plaque in honour of Jerry Devlin. That's the photo they're holding up there. So basically, around 20 years ago, he arrived up for a few drinks at the club and he just literally was wrong man, wrong time. It was a random shooting, it seems. He wasn't targeted. And LVF gunman, as Dennis said, riddled him with bullets. Seven bullets they found in him. His brother, Kevin, was one of those who found him riddled with seven bullets. Jerry was the manager of the football team. Four years before that, the club president, Sean Fox, was shot dead in his home. Uh, so it's extraordinary. What Dennis seems to say is, uh, this club was there from the 50s, everything yeah. was fine, 
And then once the trouble started, as Dennis says, the soft targets were hitting both sides. And in Glen Gormley, that meant the GEA club. So this clubhouse has been burnt down yeah. 13 times. Mm. Yeah, 70s, 80s and 90s. Um, it was burnt down in, in 92 and, and twice in 93, yeah. July and then December. And actually he references a really good book if anybody has never read it. Um, Des Fahey was an Ulster journalist. Um, I'm not sure where Des is these days, but he wrote a great book called How the GA Survived the Troubles. It's well worth reading. Um, right. And actually he, re he references, uh, Dennis references that in this, in this piece. Um, there's a phenomenal, I mean, some of the details in mm. it. Uh, they, they, a guy went up at one stage and um, he was having a drink, a big guy, Jerry Tank McLaughlin is, is his loan as locally, and he lowered his giant frame onto a crate because the club they were using, they were rebuilding one of the times and they were using a bit of a she-bean. Yeah. And um, they, 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 they saw, a couple of them saw dangling wires and they had to call in the British Army. But actually, he was so fortunate. He was so heavy that he crushed the circuits and the bomb didn't go off, but there was a bomb in the barrel that he sat down on. They found a bomb yeah. in the changing room 35 years ago on, the, yeah. on a match day. Yeah. Um, it really is extraordinary. I don't think we understand sometimes, Joe. Um, no. We don't understand what people in the north have gone through in terms of the troubles, but also we don't understand, I think, what playing GA means to them mm. and the importance of it. And, you know, we always, there, there is a tendency in the South, say the Mad Nordies, you know, in terms of, you know, when there's club battles and all kinds of things up in the North. But I think you have to go to the North a lot and you have to go to lots of matches in Ulster to understand what it means to these people. Mm. And you say, Dendis, you know, this is a great piece about what it means for them. And the interesting thing is I interviewed one of them last week, um, Peter Healy, who's on this current team, he's not a senior footballer, but if you met him and he didn't open his mouth, he looks, he's, you know, a young guy, he's studying actuary in UCD, he, he looks for all the, you know, for all the stereotypes like, you know, a young D4 trendy guy, and then you hear his Ulster accent and he starts to talk to you. But he said to me, none of us, my generation, he said, we don't, we don't remember any of these murders. It was, it was, you know, the last one was way before any of us, that was in 2002. Yeah. But he said, if you walk into our ha into our clubhouse and you look at the pictures and the stuff on the walls, he said, you understand what yeah. these people were through. And Dennis says that the clubhouse okay, burnt down repeatedly. It was rebuilt often with volunteers in the club who might work in construction, you know, so it would be uh, back up again yeah. in three months. No such thing as planning permission, just done. And there's um, an amazing scene that you can only imagine Oh yeah, so Jerry Devlin, who shot 20 years ago and his brother Kevin found him, uh, they talk about the earthquake of Devlin's murder went around in waves and it ties in with your point, Clean, about what the GA uh, means to them. So he talks about, you know, there's a lot of people saying, F me, what's it all about, says Niall Murphy, the vice chairman. He says, and then at the graveside, Kevin, his brother, just says, we're not going away. Wasn't even planned, he just screamed it out. Yeah, that, that really jumped out at me when I read this yeah, piece. Take a deep breath after that, you? Don't do. you? you do, because you're imagining, shocking. like I found myself imagining like my own you know, yeah. brother. Like, that would be the kind of passion that would be there. And again, when you're talking about a murder like that, that was effectively wrong man, wrong time, but it was a, a killing of symbolism. You know, and and that's what all of this stands for. And again, that that symbolism is is, is something you're going for earlier on when you talked about the the last person that was killed. So it was actually 
The last Catholic killed in the Troubles was one of their players. Gerard Lawlers was 18 um, on July 22nd, 2002. He spent the afternoon in St. Enders with his teammates and that evening he was killed on the Antrim Road by a gunman on a motorbike. Mm. Philly Kern is the oldest member of the St. Enders current panel and he grew up with Gerard with a few minutes to go in the All-Ireland semi-final he was sent on. The crowd erupted, said Niall Murphy, the vice chairman of the club. Yes, for Philly, but also a recognition that Philly represented something tangible with their past. Yeah, Joe Brawley's piece last week. That was Brawley's piece where he described that last week. Yeah. <laughs> where they were all, Oof. where there were people crying. It was amazing. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. But I like, you know, you, you you listen to people like Sambo McNaughton over the years, and I had a friend who used to play camogie uh, for Donegal, and every time she went to the border, they knew her, they knew who she was, and she was always. Always, her car was always searched, and they'd ask her what her hurls were for. Samba McNaughton talked about that for years about mm. being searched constantly because you there was an identification of GA in your car. They knew who you were, and you would be questioned and hassled. So I don't. We understand sometimes. Mm. The great thing about St Andrews is is their growth. I mean, back then um, in the 1950s, it was 70 percent of their local population was unionist. But there's been a big change in the demographic of the area, and also very interesting because I was wondering how did they? They have massive. They've like something like 500 juveniles. They have a huge growth area. And in this, Dennis explains that um, at one stage, one of their pitches, old pitches, was was rezoned for development. And I think they were able to get some money then. They've rebuilt the club. There's a local primary school in the area, which uh, Joe Borelli also talked about, which is an all-Irish school. Yeah. And it's a thriving, thriving club now. Um, 12 years ago, we had 230 members. Now there's more than 850. And that links in with the piece that we were looking at earlier on, Andy, about rural depopulation yeah. just, and the GA. Mm, just one last thought on that. So I'm not so young that I don't remember the Troubles. I remember being in a car in 95 when the ceasefire was announced. Me and friends were going to the beach and one of their mums was driving us and we all cheered. Like we knew it was a great day and a big thing. With the passage of time, this just feels surreal that this actually happened. Well, it, well, and also within incredible. the, and the in current the context environment. Of Brexit, exactly, yeah. in the context of the possibility of What's a hard border with, ever coming with. again. Yeah. That, that's the emotions I, it would stir up. For when people. I finished reading that piece, I read it again to make sure I hadn't missed this, but not once does Dennis Walsh use the word Brexit. He doesn't go for that line, because mm. in the context mm. of that piece, you know what I mean, it doesn't need to be said. It's underneath the entirety of it, through the feeling, through the passion, through the symbolism. Mm. That is what we're messing with. Okay. It's fragile. It's very fragile. And the, we've all grown, maybe I'm a little bit older than you, Joe, but the same kind of generation. I've folks up in Donegal and travelled over that border to and fro many times. Mm. And the flashlights, the guns, the dogs, everything. Okay, The infrastructure is gone now. And I've shown uh, my wife going over that border where it used to be. And there's no sign. In fact, if you put it back, you'll be in the middle of a housing estate in Acton Cloy. Acton yeah. Exactly. So that's, that's what we're messing with here. And there's too many people, and I, I'm not going to go on a soapbox here, but there are too many people who are making decisions that do not have any understanding mm. of what this means to the people of all of our land, where we have this really delicate existence, where we can all choose our own identity and our own symbolism and the things that matter to us all, north and south, at the same time. And we all just get on with it. Mm. That's all we want, just to get on with it. So people's identity, you know, GA players' identity in Ulster, um, certainly in some counties, is so strong because of what they came through, I mm. think. Yeah. And, it, and it has also helped um, them, you know, to, to bind them together and to make them as strong as they are in counties like Tyrone and Armagh. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. They play on Saturday, by the way. They're against the Kerry champions, yeah. Kilcummon. And I suspect they will have the neutral support St. Endis <laughs> on Saturday. 
Right, where do you want to go next, James? Uh, the Michael Clifford piece that Cleaner just mentioned in the Irish Mail on Sunday is good. Um, uh, so the, the first thing I, I love about this, it's, it's peripherally around, um, I suppose, the rural uh, problems that JA clubs have, picks up on Valencia Island in particular, but it's got the big photo of the famous Gav Pitchin in his Turk which is great. And if anyone's never seen this photo, it's just phenomenal. The small pitch, barely more than a field with some posts on it, but surrounded by rocky hillsides. It's phenomenal and I love seeing it. Um, but the, uh, the start of the piece really draws you in. Um, last month, while the rest of us were counting hand passes, and I think on, I was mm. talking about rule changes on this show too once, uh, they were conducting a far more testing audit on Valencia Island. An emergency meeting of the GAA club was convened to see if they could muster the bodies to keep the ball kicked out from the year. They stopped counting at 11, knowing that if they didn't find any more, then the thing that has bound their community together for more than 114 years would be vaporised into folklore. He's a lovely writer, Michael Clifford itself. A lovely intro. What a lovely writer he is. Yeah, and um, it, it, the piece is done on the basis that Valencia have forwarded a motion to Congress and Kerry have approved it. And the motion is that... Um, if a player hasn't, it, it, it basically, there's, they brought in a rule a couple of years ago that no player under 17 could play in an adult competition. But the argument in some uh, rurally depopulated areas is if you do that, we can't field a team. Okay. We can't field a senior team. So they've made, <coughs> they've come up with a rule and they're saying if, if, it's an, if, it's a, if it's a club that's a junior club and they only have one adult team, then can we use use somebody under 17? And they have actually put a motion to Congress. And so it's on the foot of that that he's talking about, yeah. the difficulty that um, that people have in rural clubs. And I think that there is, the, the bigger picture here is that this was a well-intentioned rule, you know, because yeah, there are so many kids obviously. playing on so many teams yeah. and they could be playing dual sports as well. And they're, they're just being thrashed, right? But as Clifford says here, these are kids in, in this local Valencia scenario not faced with the threat of burnout, but often with boredom because of a lack of games given that their minor league season extends to no more than three or four games. Okay. And, and their goalkeeper is 52. Richard Quigley. Yeah. He's pointing out that, that that's, why he, that's why he has to be yeah, there. Yeah, it's a great power, but he, he, he's talking about that, says, no country for old men, you've got to be kidding. In vast swathes of rural Ireland, there'll be no clubs but for old men. Just before we leave the um, GA uh, team and um, on the Michael Clifford fan club bandwagon as well then, he's talked to Ronan McNamee, just for all oh. of us who are oh, saying yeah. that, you know, this is great. GA players don't say anything anymore. Yeah, this is great. Introducing Ronan McNamee. Um, so, he's, well, he's 27 now. He's been around a long time. Seventh season. Yeah, he's a really good player for Tyrone. Michael says he's finding the uh, game he loves harder and harder to find. He is old school. Go back to the clips from the 1980s, says McNamee. Drops an F-bomb. <laughs> they just battered each other. Nobody said anything. And he loves that one. You see where Colm O'Neill just smacks Mick Lyons and he just smacks him and he doesn't go down, he just looks at him. Today, if someone gets their hair rubbed, they're holding their face. And then, of course, Mick mentions Tiernan McCann. Yeah, Tiernan McCann, who really has uh, probably <laughs> never lived that down, even though I must say the guy has played brilliantly for Tyrone awesome. ever since. Yeah, um, yeah it's, uh, um, McNamee was involved in a punch-up in, um, in the McKenna Cup final recently, so it's kind of on foot at that. But I love the way he is so straight, because, you know, now uh, it's, it's rare enough that... that you know, GA players are not told to, you know, be careful what you say and all that. He, none of that. He's 
having none of it. Um, and he's really, he, he, and he also has a go at the pundits and says, like, look at the pundits, look what they were at in their days. And he, he says, Colin, Mac Colin O'Rourke was no saint when he was playing, but if anyone lifts a hand now, he seems to have something. Same about Kieran Whelan, his elbows were sharpened on a grinder for years and there was never anything said about it. It's and you can nice. just hear him saying that with the Tyrone accent, it's brilliant. Elbows sharpened on a grinder. <laughs> yeah. It's a bit of poetry. That's, but you know that's what I do? tells and you everything. He makes a really valid point here, which is one that, that I really... I really sympathise with them yeah. and that is he says is that the punditry in hurling for instance is always how brilliant everything is they're constantly promoting hurling as a brilliant sport and the boys that are doing the punditry are building it up the time, all the time Start and this the, is so yeah. true there's such a snobbery and this whole thing about like there's never a dirty stroke hitting hurling clearly when you listen to or watching people covering it you know um, or, you know, it's very rarely that really they will say that yeah. even though it's very clear that there's a lot of cynicism in hurling and people are being fouled all the time oh, but it's so fast Sometimes I think people don't see it, but I, I do think there's a great deal of cynicism in hurling. But oh, it's such a beautiful game, we can't even say I, that. I still laugh. One of the first times Tommy Welch was on the show was an under 21 <laughs> game that wasn't being televised, so we were going to him for updates in the evening. And there was a sending off, and I said, What? So what happened? It was, I don't know, I think it might have been Cork Wexford, it doesn't really matter. And Tommy said, Oh, look, there was a high ball in, and they both went up to it up fairly. I think the sun might have been in, you know, your man's eyes and I thought, you know, just clash of hurls and referee just decided, you know, might have been dangerous player or whatever. But anyway, look, it's a great game and off went. <laughs> so later that night I'm watching it back. Honestly, this fella nearly decapitated the other fella. He after just swung through him, nearly took off his head, and Tommy, I was like, Tommy! Tommy couldn't bring himself to, you know, talk about this. Tommy horrible once show. managed to flip a referee, didn't he? Himself. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, there is there is that thing of it. And Magnamy is, you know, he's not having it because he's saying there's a real hypocrisy here. Like first of all, nothing happens now, but it's blown up into a load of things. Um and uh, and secondly, you know, why is there this hypocrisy? I, I think in that respect though, actually So I understand he's saying he's saying with the footballers could be the best game of football you ever play and they'll pick something out, scrutinise it, break it down and try and diminish what you've just seen. It's almost as if they want football to be overtaken or left behind. Okay, I accept that to a point. There is an argument that maybe the hurler, hurling uh, punditry fraternity need to just come, my, come, that, and, come and meet the footballer ones halfway. Yeah. Yeah. Why is there no, why is there no, why was there no black card in hurling? Like for me, yeah. there's a ton of people get taken down really cynically in hurling. Yeah. And like Mike, because Michael the Dignan, rule is different. Michael Dignan and others will in fairness talk about, well, the sweeper is not good and people yeah. might disagree with it or agree with it, but at least he's not saying everything's great, it's all amazing. Yeah. So there can be an element where in hurling, Jesus, it's not amazing, it's amazing, it's great, it's great, it's great. There's a balance to be struck. It's very yeah. difficult to strike the balance, especially Look, probably you're on live TV, you have three minutes to talk, you give your opinion. It's all hard. Yeah. But um, but there is that little bit of a difference, I think, in how it's analysed, definitely. I think it's more than that. I think McNamee wants them to praise the physicality. He wants to praise oh, back. He does, he clearly oh, no, he wants, wants that. that. He yeah. does, yeah. No, so yeah. he's talking about the International yeah. Rules Series, which I think is a, this is a weird example to pick, but he's saying the first time the International Rules Series came over here, they absolutely killed each other. And people watched it because it was physical, and people got hurt. Yeah. You know, I, I know what he's saying, right? There was always a, a degree of, we watched the international rules for the fights. For the fights. Yeah. But it's also a reason why 
it almost died again. No, I, look, I'm disagreeing with him on the bring back uh, dust ups. Yeah, point. yeah. Back, but I think he's not. In, in fairness, he's not really saying that. No. But what he is saying is, and 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 he's saying the best says, game of football. He's not for lawlessness to prevail, but the bar to be raised to allow football to breathe again as okay. a physical contact yeah, sport. I think that's probably a good summary. Well, Jamie, you've got the same paragraph at the, at the yeah, very yeah. end where he's talking about there's no middle ground. Yeah, that's that what he says. Any kind of handbags is blown up into a disgrace when actually it might just be a bit of handbags. And you know what? That's okay. That's not a great headline if you're looking for clickbait, though. It's not great, though, is it? <laughs> no. There's no middle ground. Oh, a nuanced point of view from a footballer. No. But I like it. I like it. I like it, I like it coming from a current player as yeah, well. Yeah. You know, and I just think it's we, we can all say, oh, they say nothing, but yeah, some, great. Good right on there you. have stuff to say. <laughs> At least he's expressing a, a view. Yeah. So what we're going to do here, we're going to round off the um, papers and continue it on Facebook Live with uh, Kleena and Andy. On the radio, we're going to take a short break. And then on the far side, if you want Leicester against Manchester United, then uh, Stephen's going to pick it up there. So to our radio listeners, if you want to keep listening here, Facebook Live or any of our social channels, and we're going to pick it right up. Or if you're looking forward to Leicester and Man United, then it's on the way in just a moment's time. And voila, the radio listeners have disappeared. Our Facebook Live listeners are all still here. We just continue. <laughs> this is the magic. Wow. The magic of the modern magic world. Magic of technology. Yeah. Are there any last GA bits? Not really. Um, um, there was, there's a very, quite a long piece by um, Barry White in the Business, the Business Post. Post yeah. it just, and I think it, it's probably worth reading alongside um, the McClifford one. Okay. Um, it's quite long. It's talking about uh, the, the problem of debt at club level in the GAA. Um, this is not my area of expertise, so I'm, I'm reading this. I find it quite interesting, but to be honest, I might be missing the entire point. It's as if there's another piece to come afterwards, but there's a lot of detail in here. Yeah, I, I, the one thing that confused me about it, and he, he was talking about it, he, he's talking about it in the context of something that happened in Round Towers. and. Mm says, you know, kind of seems to, you know, a, a club in, in Kildare, a really famous club, I think it's Den Ryan's club, um, and he talks about a history that they had in, in, a, in sort of a, applying for grants and things not being completely kosher and them getting picked up. I'm not sure where he was going with it as well. And, and also particularly because it's all in the context of John Horn last week talking to the Shannon and things were asked about money and all the rest. But he does point out that... Um, uh, um, that it, it, it has been clarified recently that um, the GA requires any club now, now they require them, anybody borrowing more than 75 grand to be ratified by the county board, debts up to 150 grand to be ratified by both the county board and the provincial council, and anything over 150,000 to be ratified by Crow Park. But I suppose it's in the context of, you know, Kildare in the past, um, Galway currently, county boards having problems, but he's saying, it isn't just county boards that are getting into mm. debt, it's clubs. Mm. And, and I wasn't quite convinced of where the argument was going in the end. No, Maybe but it's going, just my reading of it. Where he goes with, the, with the, the, the figures is interesting because he's, um, he's talking about the combined debt across the counties was approximately, I think it's uh, 60 million, yeah. 23 million related to Cork development of Pocky Cueve. On top of that, GA has a scheme whereby counties deposit any surplus money to Croke Park. This has produced a sum of around 33 million, which can be sent to counties that find themselves with difficult de deficits. But these figures relate only to the county boards. They don't have the yeah, club, club figures club in. Club so figures, it's the 4,000 yeah. clubs. So I think what he's getting at is that, broadly speaking, there's enough stories that are both known and suspected yeah. that there is potentially still, 10 years after the crash, a yeah. debt 
tidal wave that needs to be managed and perhaps they simply do not know the big picture of right now. They so don't know the depth of it yet. Correct. Yeah, so maybe. it feels to me like a piece that might have a follow-up in its future. Um, to, to actually tell us more of what this is, because I certainly am left... Um, I, I need an extra paragraph at the end to pull it all together for me, who isn't a guy expert. OK. Um, Aidan O'Brien is a footballer. I remember being at a game, I don't think which one it was, they all blended into each other after a while under the O'Neill Keane era. But it was definitely one of the latter ones where O'Neill was in a bit of trouble, and Aidan O'Brien uh, played for Ireland, and Stephen Hunt was doing co-commentary for us. And I remember him just pointing out O'Brien and saying that he remembered O'Brien coming through at a club or trying to make it in the game around the time that Hunt was at the same club and Hunt said he always kept an eye out for Irish, young Irish internationals coming through and he was saying this guy's done so well to make it that maybe he wasn't so sure he was going to make it so he's obviously worked incredibly hard in his game and he was delighted to see him playing for Ireland. Yeah. Uh, that, was the, that was why he always stuck in my head because, you know, we were watching it with our arms folded going, oh, another great, let's see what this guy's going to do and he's not up to much, yeah. 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 And Hunt said, no, 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 look, okay, he's not, he's not Ronaldo, but actually for him to have made his career, he's done so well. And then you read this uh, piece with David Snade, and Great piece. you have that sense 10 times over. David Snade has a real habit of, in the world <coughs> of football in particular, where it's hard to do anything different or to get access to interesting people. He's just on a really good run at the moment. Yeah, doing he has some, done some great stuff. Some well, he clever goes and pieces. talks to people, and, yeah. and what he does really well, and it's not the first time, is he goes to them. Uh, he goes to them where they live or where, where their home place is, and he, he describes it and he tells you about it. Mm. And I think it's very hard for us sometimes to identify with people who are declaring for Ireland in any sport. Um, we just hear, oh, they have an Irish granny or whatever it is, or you know, relations. But we don't actually know where they're from, and we can't see it. This piece is really good. Um, and yeah. first, the great headline, first of all, straight out of Islington, which is a great headline. Aidan O'Brien talks knives, drugs, and the life of crime he managed to avoid thanks to family, friends, and football. Um, so and right, right away, you're in. You're in. You're in straight away. A great yeah. headline, writer for, for whoever subbed it. It's a great piece. Um, and he meets him at Holloway Road um, Station, and he talks about just the difference in the gentrification of that area plus what also exists in the area. And he has a great, he has a great description of, um, of this area of North London. There, um, he talks about it, um, it's a mix of the gentrified, the movement studio offers ballet, yoga and pilates and the traditional, the master plays chipper serving an all day breakfast for a fiver. There are far greater divisions in this corner of North London than those who prefer a downward dog to a battered cod. Yeah. Islington is, after all, a district of extreme division. Yeah, because I'd always thought Islington was posh. You know, Tony Blair had a mansion there and yeah. Boris Johnson and David makes that point. I didn't realise Islington, it's where the Arsenal, it's where the Emirates is as well. It's Lo where the Emirates is, yeah. yeah. Lowest life expectancy in London. Yeah. A third of its children and over 40% of the elderly living in poverty. Highest number of serious mental health issues as well as the highest levels of depression in England. Yeah, shocking stuff. So this is where he's from. So to give you a sense, so look, he, he picks up um, David Snade, they hop in his Mercedes 4x4 and there's a McDonald's drinks container down by the side and O'Brien sort of smiles and say it was a treat after matches. So right away, as you said, Kina, he's in his environment and he's um, comfortable. But like, so the knife prime, this is what Aidan oh. O'Brien says, knife prime man, everyone had a knife. We'd be sitting here, so they're driving around Islington, we'd be sitting here, we'd turn around and up there at the other end there'd be 30 people coming towards us in hoodies, some on bikes, just different gangs he's talking about. There'd be dogs. Uh, you've got to make a run for it. There are certain times when you just can't stand there and go, come on then, because they're just going to effing sort you out. It ain't fists, you're uh, not thinking. 
you're not thinking I might get a few bruises here, um, but I'll take you know I'll I'll stand my ground and take it. He says it's not that. It was I could get stabbed. I could get killed here. You've got to be clever in what you do. He said if you walked around on your own in certain areas and another group saw you, you were either uh, you know they get chased, uh, beaten up, or stabbed. You couldn't really walk around on your own. There's a terrible, terrible um, disease of knife crime in London at the moment. I've been reading yeah. articles on it. A lot of the um, Sunday magazines in England actually in recent months have written about the percentage of knife crimes. Just, it's horrendous. There's a yeah. gang culture in London, in parts of London. And obviously he grew up right in the middle of it. And he regards football as what saved him yeah. and stopped him getting involved. And he stops at one point. So he walks he walks him around his whole area, which is lovely. Yeah. You really get a feel for it. And then at one point he, sto he stops to talk to Donovan, a Jamaican guy who influenced him, who was one of, one of the guys who helped him when he was younger. And they talk about a, a stabbing up in the Caledonian Road. And, and Snaith says, you know, you're a bit doubtful about it. And then you look at the London Evening sta uh, Standard that evening and it confirms a 17-year-old was stabbed to death for his bike. Yeah. And so it's a, there's drugs, there's, but the stabbing, the knife carrying is, is, seems to be just a, a real problem in London. And it's a great piece because he just comes across, first of all, as a really, really nice guy. It does, um, yeah. Who, you know, like so many kids in deprived areas, by virtue of good people that he met, uh, whether it's family or friends or sport, you know, was lucky enough to stay on the right side. And there's a fantastic story about him buying, um, buying a television for his, his grandfather when yeah. he was dying. It's just amazing. Yeah, it's a lovely yeah. piece. It is nice. His, his granddad, Carrick uh, Insurer, his um, grandmother is uh, Dublin. Dublin. So Donovan, that, that kind of good influence he bums into, who tells him about the 17-year-olds who's been stabbed, you know. Um, it's funny, that David's kind of there, obviously, his third wheel in, in the conversation, but Donovan says to him, are you still doing your thing with football? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. this guy, part of the Millwall team that beat Everton on the BBC. Yeah, yeah and he says it to him, before. you should have watched it on BBC. Yeah, you should have watched it on BBC. 15 million people watching. I, um, yeah. I want more from this piece. Like, it's, I, re I read this, and it's, it's just fantastic. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know the character involved. Already I'm drawn in. Mm. I'm drawn into everything about it. I want to know more about Donovan. This to me is a magazine piece screaming to be told. Yeah. It's 5,000 words. It's big, going into depth about the place, about the person, about everything around him that's brought him to where he is today because it's there. Yeah. It really is there. Uh, it's the, I mean, along with Dennis Walsh on St. Hennis, they're the, for me, they're the two pieces in six months I'll remember from today. Yeah, you know, yeah it's a great piece, yeah. They're he, really good. He had a trial at Arsenal and he was told he was too slow. And, I, and and I think that was Hun's, Hun's yeah, point, like yeah. this guy didn't have all the raw materials. Yeah, yeah But yeah. he was the, he scored the goal that got Millwall up to the championship, yeah. he's now playing championship football. Yeah. Um, he scored um, against Poland and he said, That's I swear right. when I scored that goal against Poland, both my grandparents, who since you were passed away, uh, they were both watching, nobody can tell me they weren't. Um, and is really just talking about his career now in terms of providing for his family. I can't afford not to be in this job. Um, and that's what he's out to do is kind of, his mum still lives in a flat in the area. He's trying to get them out of Islington, you suspect. Yeah. Um, yeah. But at the same it, time, it, 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 it's Blair's like, you know, that awful yeah. tower death, the Grenfell Tower, you know. Yeah. Again, that happened in a part of London that you had this image that was really, really rich, but it, it, it existed, coexisted side by side, and this area is the same. And as you say, it's, it's the place that uh, Emirates Stadium is as well. Oh. So I think it's a really interesting piece for anybody who's interested in soccer. And also that, that 
understanding where some of these people who declare for Ireland, where they come from, and that's influenced. It's one of the things we miss a lot. We always, you know, why are the you know, why are the rugby team flavour of the month? Because, well, a lot of them live in Ireland or we, we know them, we know their stories, they are, they're seen all the time. And we do miss this bit of where these people outside the island come from. Yeah. What what makes them? What what makes them? I mean, he, he's saying here that the Irishness was never foisted upon him. It was yeah. just there. Yeah. We don't get that. Mm. We do not. There's a fundamental part inside this that does not understand that, and it should be explained to us. And Liam Miller, Liam Miller recently did a great interview, and it was that was exactly his point as well, Andy, which was that you know it was it was never fake Irishness. We were Irish. We felt Irish, and he says the same thing. My mum had four sisters and five brothers. Must have had forty cousins. When when we went around the house, it was all Irish. Yeah. We, we are an emigrant so nation. Yeah. We have a diaspora that, that it's one of our great things we give to the world and this is one of the times where we get something back through sport to the people who they, they put roots somewhere else but the home, even though physically is somewhere else, the home is Irish and I don't think we get that and stories like this are need good. Them, don't you? They, they are yeah. great and we need more of them. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's brilliant. The sad thing is probably, you know, PR people and all the handlers would say, oh, don't be doing interviews, but actually the next time Aidan O'Brien plays for Ireland. Now, now you know who he is and where he's come from, yeah. Yeah. absolutely, yeah. yeah, absolutely, it's what you want to read, yeah. So that's, yeah. that is, honestly, that is really, 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 really was good. It, there uh, was, it's, it's nothing, is nothing as good in, as a piece, but there's a piece, there's a Josh Cullen, the Paul Rouse piece in, um, uh, in Sunday Times today, again, speaking to an, uh, you know, a guy, and he was a good mate of Declan Rice's, isn't that the one? Yeah. And again, it just gives you some insight into it, but this is the piece to read, I think. Yeah, this is it's, it's outstanding. Uh, Super Bowl, are you both up watching tonight? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yep, definitely, yeah. Okay. Are you a hardcore every Sunday night? Uh, yeah, it used to always watcher? be the same weekend as the Basketball Cup Finals in Ireland. And so everybody would go from the Basketball Cup Finals and direct and then go home and still watch the Super Bowl. Yeah, okay. I watched the Championship games this year. They were brilliant. And I don't always get to watch it, depending on what else is on. But look, you can't miss it. It's, 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 and it's a... It's a it's it's a uh, what you want from it. We were just talking about this outside. If you're not a, if you're not a super, if you're not an NFL you know nut and you don't follow it hugely, which I don't, you do want a nice simple guide to it sometimes. Yeah. And you came across a few of them, Andy, didn't you? Are you a nut? Um, Are you an NFL nut? Used to be, uh, and then time time moves gloriously on, and um, <laughs> I can't don't have time to be anymore. Yeah. So I am actually in the place where I know that previously I would have been a hardcore fan looking at all of the writing all through the year and wanting like deep, deep analysis and sodger, you know, layman pieces. Now, this year, I'm firmly in the layman camp. <laughs> so I was looking, knowing what I was, I know who I am. Self-knowledge is good. And you know how much the NFL nuts hate you as well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'm okay with that. Five things to bluff your way through a pub yeah. conversation. Yeah, listicles. Yeah. Let's hear it for the listicles. Tom Brady's ageless, says Andy McGee. <laughs> yeah. But, but that's, that's what I want. So I was, I was looking through, I had a little note saying, right, what, how do people cover the Super Bowl this year with yeah. that in mind? Because it being on a Sunday night here, it's perfect for the Sunday papers. Bluffers, guides, etc. Telegraph do it well. It's Alex Finnis here talking about what he calls the decisive areas in tonight's Super Bowl. And they're just small little sort of 50, 60 word um, bullets on things to look out for in the game. And it's really concise yeah. and really good. Good. Okay. Uh, so mark that one. Uh, the Mail on Sunday we talked about. Peter I think Carolina. it's great. Yeah, it's good. really good. It's short, but it's uh, packed full of information and it's well written. Kind of gives um, you the narrative you want to know about, really yep. from both sides, don't you? Yeah, quite the story. Head coach Bill Belichick. You see, 
the nuts will think, why are you telling me who Bill Belichick? <laughs> you know? But anyway, Bill Belichick, he's uh, coached in the NFL since 1975. He's won two Super Bowl uh, rings as defensive coordinator of the New York Giants in the 1980s. He's been at the Patriots since 99. Tom Brady, his uh, pick, the 199th uh, pick, and it's the Rams they're up against, and that's Sean McVay. Total opposite end of the spectrum. Yeah. At the age of 33 is the youngest can we, coach. Can we just pause? Reach. He's 33. It is disgusting. I know. I know. Uh, it's wrong. The youngest uh, coach to reach a Super Bowl, Sean McVeigh. This is like he's like a wonder kid, and he has some nice stuff from McVeigh. Belichick has been texting him all year after games. That amazed me that mm. they were texting each other. I thought just I don't, to say, I don't best of luck, well yeah, done, good job. Think, yeah. Yeah, I don't think that's going to happen in a lot of sport on this side of the world, is it? No, it just shows you what that life, that gilded life inside the NFL is like, mm. really, you know. Yeah, but um, it's good. It's I mean, it's not the in-depth. No. no, Eamon Sweeney takes it a step further, which I think is a good piece, um, very good piece. Um, so he he gives you a load of the narrative. So he gives you a little more detail about McVeigh. He talked about the um, the Gurley, the Todd Gurley thing. So if you read his piece, you're going to find out about a few of the kind of the narratives that you should be watching for tonight. So I think this is actually a, go a good piece. Right. Um, I, I like this attention. one. Um, well, he, I mean, obviously, obviously he, uh, he talks about Brady, but he also talks about um, the fact, you know, they're not playing this Gurley, they haven't played Gurley, there's a big argument, is he injured, is he not injured, why are they not starting him and all the rest. Um, then he talks about, um, you know, he talks about the great championship game where, where Brady really pulled it out of the bag against Patrick Mahomes, which was one of the greatest, mm. the last quarter, was the, I, I, I've never seen a quarter like it. It was the highest scoring quarter, I think, ever, and it was just unbelievable in a playoff history it was just an unbelievable night and like I thought Brady was kind of finished and in that last quarter I just could not believe what he did and I couldn't Mahomes was brilliant so mm. it was like watching two brilliant scrum halves yeah. and one out doing the other one but they were both both and Mahomes is completely you know young young guy next generation yeah, yeah and then he's talking about this is um, Jared Goff who is the quarter quarter I think isn't he the quarterback for the Rams yeah. and he's the guy he's 17 years younger than Brady and he's actually he was born up in the same area um, and he has only three players through for more passing yards than Goff this season and Brady wasn't one of them. So he gives you a few narratives to be watching around it and fills in, I think, some of the interesting stuff about it. I think it. Sweeney's piece is good. So it's the back page of the Sony Independent and it is good. It it, it manage, It's written quite well um, in that it, all, it tells you what is going on tonight and also what got both teams there, there but yeah. in quite a clever way, in quite a subtle way. It's not doing an ABC naughty version, but it's telling you why these things are important. And also, in fairness, when you're watching the game, yeah. If you're like me, who hasn't been able to pay attention to every snap during the season, these are some of the things that they will reference during the commentary, and it'll make me feel less like an idiot. And he's very good on he's very good on Brian Flores, the defensive defensive coach for the Patriots, and about where he's come from. Um, he is the son of an Honduran uh, immigrant, and when you read about where he came out of, and he says he he's presence tonight eloquently rebukes Donald Trump's hmm. libel against immigrants. So it's a really good overall piece. Yeah. I liked also the piece in the Sunday Times on Gronk. Um, on Gronk, yeah, on Robert uh, Gronkowski. If anybody doesn't know who he is, um, he it's a he's like. He's the tight end. He's this famous tight end for the Patriots, and uh, he's kind of indestructible. But well, we, well, well, apart from when he's <laughs> destroyed. Him. Well, this is the point. So you, you, it is a good piece on like the physical toll on their bodies, and uh, you know, um, Gronkowski has had four forearm surgeries, three back operations, many concussions, and you see the phrase "many concussions," mm. and you think now, in the context of everything we know. That's where this stuff gets really scary. Uh, torn ACL, torn MCL, back issues. But what? Uh, so you really do, you know, 
you watch it and I, I watch it now with a different eye. I think that's why I don't watch it as much anymore now because ever since the revelations about the concussions, I do think. Yeah. God. What really, there was a couple of really interesting things in this is um, um, Gronkowski had the chance to retire at 19 and collect four million insurance after a back injury as a college player. Oh, tempting. Yeah. But Guaranteed four million up front is tempting Imagine, at 19. At 19. That's when four million was really four million as well. Well, that's also, but that's... That shows the value of the players, even at that age group in college football and the whole industry that's in college football. That would freak me out. I once was lucky enough to, when the Steelers came to Ireland to play, I got sent over um, and was at their pre-season training camp. And, um, More courageous journalism. <laughs> yeah, tough, tough selfless. gig, but somebody had to do it. And um, uh, I remember at the time asking what the career length, expected career length was for an NFL player. And at the time they were saying maybe, maybe four years, four to five years. And in the recent statistics, um, they, they, I think they say 3.3 years is the average. But for people like running backs, it's two and a half years. Yeah. So what these guys put their bodies through and the shortness of their careers is well, it's, terrifying. It's even more Some than aspects that. of it are terrifying. Because when you look at the, I mean, again, the point about money, absolutely well made. And the reason that back injury pushed him down and made him available in the draft. And he was part of that um, team where Bill Belichick, in one of his many Patriots guises, set up this twin tight end offense with Aaron Hernandez, who is now dead. Um, but... The contracts in the NFL are very different to baseball, for example. Baseball, every dollar is guaranteed. In the NFL, it is not. You've got your signing bonus, and that's pretty much it. So the big dollar figure you see these guys signs, they very rarely get. And is that... So if you are just... It's because the, the agreements that they have between the players' union and the NFL and the league are very, very different, and the players' union isn't that as strong in their... In their I suppose, their historical negotiating ability as the MLB Players' Union. So you have a huge difference, but you see the dollar figure in the headline, they're not getting that money. And is that based on them performing and staying un uninjured, or is it based they, on they can cut what's them. going everywhere? They can just cut they them. They can yeah. cut them. So yeah. your running backs are a great example. You get, um, there's a, a great uh, sort of a, a phrase they have is they brought signed this guy, he was in a street close last week. It's because yeah. they needed another guy and they just say, right, bringing you in off the shelf, that guy's injured, see ya. Yeah, just in, in and out. Yeah, it's it's an incredibly cruel world. Do the players take out huge insurance policies personally then? I don't know, they must do. There's, um, have you ever seen the 30 for 30 broke? Yeah. It's one of the better, I haven't seen that. It's one yeah. of the better yeah. ones, it's really good and it's a very, very simple format. It's just fellas sitting down, looking at the camera. Um, I was actually kind of reminded of, um, of the Aidan O'Brien piece because uh, towards the end he says, I have to, I I need this job. Mm. I need this job because I'm taking care of all of my family. And mm. that's what a lot of these NFL guys are doing. They are taking care of everybody, not just family. It's like areas of the neighborhood. And again, that's contrasted with, you know, never mind the taxes, I mean, there's a lot of taxes, you know, state, federal, whatever. But it's not guaranteed. They can be wiped away at any time. But the guys at the very, very top, we're seeing contracts change to include more guaranteed money. Yeah. For that very reason, they're getting wise. Um, yeah, but it's uh, yeah. yeah. Wow. It's crazy stuff. And it is. I mean, it's interesting, Kleena. It does change how you watch it, and even you know, yeah. Joe Bradley of all people's talking about the um, the rugby and the rugby. You know, can I money just say that's a strange timed piece and the toll. The physical toll. Yeah. yeah it's talking it, about it the does, language used around it, the brutality yeah, of it. And, and it does. I find change when you watch rugby now. Yeah. The last decade, maybe. And so when you watch NFL, when you watch it, it's hard to take any great 
enjoyment is the wrong word, but there was a thrill in the physicality. And now when you understand potentially what might be ahead of some of these players. Yeah, I find myself wincing watching it sometimes. It, I, you do yeah. have misgivings, I find, even during the games when you're watching what some of these players are doing. Do you know I, where I don't like it when I see a guy who's employing rank bad technique? Okay, and that's the thing where I think we can get better. Mm. With, the, with the law changes and they're trying to get you know, both players going into a collision and a good, the tackle is the most common event in, in a rugby match, if we can get both of them bent over a bit more, that's the goal in okay. theory. Right. The incidence of head injury and HIAs, because um, they're not exactly the same, should decrease ergo it should be a safer game. Um, but when you see guys going in and their head's just completely in the wrong place, you just wonder how these guys have been actually taught to tackle. Mm. tackle. Mm. Right. Mm. Like there is there is a technique issue here that rugby has been staring down the barrel for a long, long time. And that's probably gonna take a generation of players to clean through. Did you read the Dominic? They're never but they've never been better coached. Yeah. Surely they're being coached better than ever before but, but, in the history of rugby. But that's simply Why are they not doing tackling. That? Okay. Did you read the Dominic, safe did, did you read the, read the Dominic Ryan piece in the Times? I'm sure you did. Yeah, it was fantastic. Yeah. He talked about the tackle which really kick-started a lot of problems yeah. um, and he, 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 from memory now, I'm talking from memory, but I think he knew his technique wasn't great but he was just so fired to smash him. Yep. That technique took a back seat and in the white heat of and a championship game, like, like yesterday, of course. Yeah. Some of the stuff you you're not you're thinking. I hope my technique is good. You're probably thinking, I'm just gonna, I just gotta get to him and the, smash him. But the technique, yeah. if, te if your technique's good, it's not a thought thing. It's embedded. It's just embedded. Yeah. Sure. It's yeah, what exactly. you do, you know. And I think I think we get very worked up about technique when we have a really bad one. You usually see it where a guy's got, he's gone into the challenge, and his head's on the wrong side, and it hits the hip or hips and hits an arse, yeah. and it you just see it bending or flopping back, and you're going, Jesus, that's not good. And we've had some high-profile neck injuries because of that. But technique is every tackle. Every single tackle is technique. And there's too many guys who are going in, and I say this, look, I'm not a professional player, it's been years since I've played, but it just looks wrong. And we, I think we're gonna, I've talked to a couple of guys um, sort of in outside studio chats and things like this, and they're seeing a similar thing. There's, there isn't an emphasis on I'm it when happy. you're coming through. And I, it's one of the things that does worry me slightly on this new inclination to follow and on college football and NFL route of this new thing saying, oh, we'll reduce the amount of contact in training. Now, yes, injuries can happen in training, but if you can't practice your technique... Can't learn your technique in training. Yeah. I wonder, is that a good thing in the mm. long run? Yeah, I mean, Raleigh quotes, of course, it does, and, and, it, and it must be quoted, you know, the recent deaths in, in France. And they we're talking were four in very, France. very, very young. Yeah, and one in the And they were hemisphere. very young. You know, they're, they're still learning their technique, you presume, as well. But I don't, I don't, I mean, his headline is over the top. Rugby is a sick business where cash comes way ahead of human cost. Um, I, I just, I think that's... Like, I think there's, there's an element, you've said it before, there's an element of danger in all sports. Okay, now rugby has these bigger bodies traveling at greater speeds, there's more power, they're all lifting, they're bigger people. And it, it, there, are, there are instances, and that's where with the NFL with me, sometimes I'm going, oh no, I can't, I can't, that's too much. Um, but at the same time, there's lots wrong with lots of sports. People still want to play them. Yeah. Still, people will sti are still willing, like Gronkowski is, to play it for money. And we're still willing to watch it, but you have to be educated, I suppose. I totally agree. It. I think the key thing ultimately is, we're, okay, children need to be protected. That's a given. Um, and so if a sport is inherently dangerous, then that's a priority. Uh, and minors need to be protected. But then there does come a point where informed consent yes. as an adult. And so rugby, NFL, once they're upfront about the dangers and if people still want to do it, mm. there is 
a point at which informed consent does... Well, that's where the NFL got itself into trouble because yeah. as soon as you are in an area where you know about something but do not pass on that knowledge Correct. to yeah. the participants, yeah. Yeah. you are in a very uh, bad area. And when you talk about children, let's not forget that you know kids go into hospital from playground. We have lots of different statistics sure. on concussions and various injuries. And at that very low end, it's only when we get to kids being about 15 that there's a tipping point. Right, the in rugby specifically? It, in, in, in a lot of sports actually. Yeah. Um, but again, uh, New Zealand's an interesting place to look at because they've got, a, <laughs> the, um, the US would hate this, but they've got a central system for all hospital admissions. So when you go into your hospital, there's a central insurance company. Um, so they've got all the data on all the admissions and it includes if you're a professional rugby player, if you're an amateur, if you're a kid, where you got the injury, how bad it was. It's a massive database, yeah. right? And you get to, they've done research and taking out all that data and stratifying it and saying, right, how risky are certain sports? Mm. And their tipping point says, right, when you get to about 15, 16, that's when rugby becomes a little bit more dangerous than some of these other sports and activities. Not just sports, but activities sure. that people actually play. Um, but yeah, I, I thought... I thought the, the headline and around some of this was a little over the top. Um, I d it is interesting that the, in England they have discontinued a trial of lowering the tackle height in a lower-ranked competition mm. cup. So that it backfired, didn't it? Yeah, why? It's, they don't know why, and that's the interesting thing. And it's so the uh, I think it was the Championship Cup. I stand to be correct on that, but it was supposed to be a season-long trial, and they have discontinued it halfway through the trial because they noticed that the, in their data gathering that the level of head injury had increased. Um, and therefore they said, right, we'll discontinue this. We're not sure why this is mm. happening. It could be a law of unintended consequences. Mm. It could mm. be the players have been so used to going high that when they try to go low, they actually don't know how to put their head in the right place anymore. Right. We don't know yet. But it'll be interesting to see what that tells us about the shape of that effort in rugby. And are you optimistic as a huge rugby fan and someone who... Uh, likes looking into data and hard numbers to back up your arguments. Are you optimistic that rugby can find a way in 10, 20, 30 years to stem the uh, very genuine uh, and valid concerns that people have about the game? Or do you th I think, you know, we've had a lot of people on the show, Eddie O'Sullivan, uh, you know, very, very smart people in the game who just say, I'm not sure I see a way out here for a game that's just so inherently physical. There's, so there's a couple of bits to this, right? So one thing, just to be uh, upfront about it, I have two small kids, boys. I would like them to play rugby because I think that when you're when you're small, um, I'm sorry, when you're young rather than small, it it can still be a game for all shapes and sizes, and that's a good thing. The fella who's six foot two when he's twelve can can take the field with the guy who's barely four foot, you know, eleven, and there's a role for them both. And at that age, again, they're a bit bouncy, a bit bendy. It should be fine. Um, but there's stuff that's going on in today's game, particularly around the Rook, for example, that I, st I just don't understand. I don't understand why when we have people engaged over the Rook and you've got the guy over trying to poach the ball and the guy can clear him out from the side and there's knees and no there's protection. hamstrings popping all over no the place. Protection. There's been a couple of really, really oh, nasty yeah. ones. <clears throat> and it's, it's a weird that we don't have more with hamstrings just going off the bone. Um, it's, and they're flying in on the clear out. There was a... Th that's a bit that I, I don't get. The tackle's one thing. If, they if we can reduce the height of players going into the tackle, that's great. That hopefully should be a thing. And it is the most common event on the field. The second most common event is the breakdown of the rook. And there's people flying into that still. Referees have got better at picking up that no-arms missile that goes in where there's no mm -hmm. attempt to grasp at all. 
But even with the grasp, that crock roll clear out, and um, Ben Ryan, the uh, former Fiji coach, he's done a lot of work trying to, you know, ping world rugby into action on this. I do not understand why, because if you look at the law book, that's not something which should be legal, mm. but it's an accepted term. And why is that so dangerous, the crock roll? Because again, you've got, you've got um, if you, uh, Trying to describe this on yeah, it's oh, we're not on radio. We're on <laughs> yeah. right. Now there will be some people just listening on podcast. Yeah. Okay, but again, imagine that guy in the old Brian O'Driscoll position, always over the ball, yeah. very low base, arse right down behind him. Yeah, and he's got his forearms right down over the ball. Yeah, okay, so he's got in first. He's not part of the tackle. He's trying to get that ball, and then you get a guy from the defensive team coming in from the side, and using kind of like a judo move to get an arm under, not around the neck, but around the shoulder, mm. um, and use his own weight to bring him over. Now, he, the side of the tackler's body is actually resting against uh, part of that attacking, or sorry, defending player. I'm getting mixed just up call with him O'Driscoll. O'Driscoll, <laughs> O'Driscoll's leg. Or if somebody else is involved, even from O'Driscoll's own support team that traps that leg, there is nowhere to go, and knees are not meant to move sideways. So it's his knee that's in trouble? It's the knee and then the connecting mechanism with the hamstring. Okay. okay. It's a real nasty one. So it's not, you, you might presume it might be a neck or an upper body area, it's the knees. The neck, but that's, that's a different one. So when, when the player is in that exposed position, it's again the, the, um, the alertness now of officials to that straight on missile, usually with a shoulder, shoulder yeah. to that exposed area of the back of the neck. Yeah. Um, that can be a nasty one. Sean O'Brien's talked about that recently. He said, how long do I have to stand here before you're going to blow your whistle? Yeah. yeah. How many free shots do they get? Yeah, yeah, and, yeah exactly. and, and again, with the way it's refereed, the size of if that player's in there first and he's got his hands on the ball and he can't get the ball, why is that, referee? It's because the player on the ground is holding on to the ball. Yes. You know, you used to have to, if you were, if you were on the ground and you were tackled, you had to present the ball immediately. immediately you couldn't yeah. hang on to it. Mm. You could place it, but now the hanging on, it should be a, a red flag. But um, I remember talking to um, the now, uh, he's since passed on, um, Arthur Tanner. Yeah, the doctor at Leinster. Doctor. Yeah. And I talked to him about that specific mechanism of injury, the crashing in to that player over and hitting that spine, that, that base of the, where the neck is. We all feel that. Spine. Whatever, whatever vertebrae yeah. that one that is. That little bumpy oh. one, yeah. right? He said, if that gets, if that goes wrong, it's a real long and nasty rehab. Um, and he was he was all in favour of. Uh, I'm not breaking any sort of uh, posthumous confidences here. He was all in favour of trying to clean up that area of the game. And thankfully, I think they're trying to do better now. But it, again, it's an area of the game which there's a lot of injury. There's a lot of potential for injury, and we seem to just go, yeah, it's fine. Mm. Okay, very interesting. Um, we pretty much have to wrap this up. We're done, basically. Um, so is there anything anyone wants to just, without being able to talk about it really, just direct people? No, yeah, no, just, just to Sergio Garcia overnight oh, or yeah. in Saudi Arabia seems to have oh, hacked yeah. up a load of, <laughs> a load of um, greens and only one paper I spotted, I think. in Derek the, Lawrence, and yeah. yeah in so the basically, it, this is actually ridiculous. Uh, Sergio Garcia sent home disgrace from the European tour in Saudi Arabia. Uh, not for being in Saudi Arabia, sent home for in disgrace for something else. He caused damage to no fewer than five greens in a temper tantrum that might be unparalleled in terms of length. The Spaniard was disqualified for serious misconduct after outraged fellow competitors in the next four groups, including Patrick Reed, all complained to officials. The uh, chief executive of the European Tour, Keith Pelly, uh, stepped in. After hearing from all sides, he issued the disqualification that is believed to have no precedent. 
Um, um, Garcia, I, one of the players paid to have been yeah, at he's, the tournament. That's it, he yeah, got he's getting appearance, appearance money, imagine. And he, uh, said, he said, God bless him, I respect the decision of my disqualification. <laughs> uh, in frustration, I damaged a couple of greens, no, five. In, 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 in frustration, I damaged a couple of greens for which I apologise. I've informed my fellow players this will never happen again. And then Derek Lawrenson, because he knows his stuff, knew that in 2007 at a WGC event in Miami, Garcia caused widespread revulsion for spitting into the 13th hole after missing a short putt. Lovely, lovely. Garcia, not sure about him. Um, well, but the thing about this was, I, I saw this on Twitter this morning because Lawrence Donegan or somebody was like, why yeah. isn't anybody covering this and where is it and why can't we see about it? So that was the only person I noticed that had spotted it. Lawrence um, uh, is trying to fight the good fight for journalism. He is, and, and he's arguing that, that, that golf journalists are, wow. are don't... They're dying. They, well, yeah, and I think he's also making the point that, again, it's a bit too... Is, is it too pazzy-wazzy? They, are they breaking the news stories that are in the thing? They're not. But everybody on Twitter was like, where's the video? We want to see the video of, well, the, I mean, of the five green the, the and what exactly he did yeah, to the them. European tour which you know do these great social media videos that's that's where golf journalism is now <sighs> that ain't going to be on the video is it I would greatly respect them if they did do it and put it out in their own official channel yeah and even if they want to make a joke out of it fine and that would be a good thing for golf's image as well it can be but five greens plus it would go viral I mean, yeah, it depends how, how desperate are they for likes because yeah. they can get a lot here. We've got great engagement, guys. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's a couple of pieces in the Telegraph, which are generally good for these kind of things on a Sunday. Um, I always seem to find these things. Uh, first one is... Uh, it's Katie Wyatt on page oh, yeah. 11. And this is, she's, she's the manager of the Manchester United women's football team. And it's about some uh, team bonding. Things. It's, it's partly a profile on her and partly about team bonding. Um, and it begins, uh, snakes, the zoologist begins nonchalantly as two slither between his fingers and twine over his forearms. I like a tube of toothpaste. Squeeze them too tight and poo comes out. And it goes on from wow. there. It's, it's, it's quite interesting. I don't know it's much about Stoney. Stoney, yeah. yeah. And um, she was over here for the launch of the 2020 initiative. And she's a very, very impressive woman. And she's, of course, the woman who has taken the... the it's the first time Man United have had a team in the Premiership. Yeah. So this piece is about some of her training methods with them. And um, so she's trying to get them used to things that they're afraid of. So she's got giant snakes and spiders and all kinds of things. Yep. Very interesting piece. And very interesting because she wouldn't take the job unless she was given access to the same sort of things for her team that the men get. And she talks about a wellness, there's a wellness coach right. in Man United that takes care of them psychologically. And he operates for the men and the women's team, or she, I don't know, doesn't say. So um, it is an interesting piece actually on her, yeah. yeah. Uh, we, we, we did a paper review um, with Louise Quinn, who plays at Arsenal. Yeah. And I was just chatting to her briefly and we mentioned the fact that United were only in their first season yeah. on the women's team and she was saying, yeah, it's long overdue, obviously, but she said, in fairness, one of the reasons is they've actually decided to do it right. Yeah, they had development. Whereas, yeah. so it took, a, you know, maybe a bit longer than ideal, obviously, ideal, but they then didn't just do a tokenistic job. Yeah, they had she, a good youth system. She said, actually, there's a few clubs who were like, we've got a women's team, look at us, but yeah. behind the scenes, if you talked to the players, they wouldn't think much of the setup. Whereas I think yeah. the feeling is and, that and, they've and done and it well that, And Stoney has said the same thing right. as well. Yeah. They had a youth system and they, they got players from that. Right, yeah. Um, the back page of the Telegraph, piece by Jim White, um, on Mercedes Gleitze, the first fem British female to swim the channel, is really interesting. Okay. Um, it's really good. It's worth anyone's time to look it up either online um, or it, it just buy the damn paper. Um, it's, it's, it's her daughter, 
uh, Dolorenda Pember has written a book called In the Wake of Mercedes Gleitza, and this just seems to be a fascinating character. Um, she just decided that she was good at swimming very long distances, and so she went off and did it. And uh, again, the, uh, White adds in some little interesting factoids, like more people have climbed Everest than have swum the channel. I did not know that. So this is a very... Uh, it goes back in time. The, it's very interesting, the human part of this. The daughter, um, Dolorenda Pember, had no idea that her mother was this famous yeah. swimmer who used to travel the world because by the time Dolorenda came along, um, Mercedes was mum. And she didn't spend any time talking about the past and it was only after she died and they discovered all of these things about her. Yeah, wow. it's, it's How do you not mention once? <laughs> yeah. You know, I swam the channel. It's, it's brilliant, but there's, there's lovely little um, notes here. So when she, when she eventually did, she, she tried doing the channel and failed. Um, and then when she did it, another British woman immediately claimed to have beaten her time by several hours and went for a claim of the, uh, of the prize money that had been offered by some of the British newspapers at the time. Um, it turned out to have been a, a hoax. But the hoaxer said, I'm just doing this to tell you how easy it is to hoax this. So every other time she went swimming, she insisted on having a boat of press men <laughs> and with people independently verifying. But that then backfired. When she swam the Strait of Gibraltar, his swim was challenged in one newspaper because her witnesses were all Spanish. You can only trust a British observer. Wow. wow. Oh, it's, just, it's a great, really interesting piece. Um, nice. And the very last piece, John. Yeah, because I'm, I'm, I'm under pressure here to wrap. Yeah. We're going to break the hour and a half mark here, which is outrageous. Ian, this is Ian Herbert's piece on Emiliano uh, Sala, oh, who yeah. died. That, that's a really interesting piece. Look it up online. It's getting shared all over the place, but it's good. Um, talks about, again, they, there was four different agents involved getting cuts of this final transfer from Nantes to Cardiff. Right. It goes into why he was taking the jet in the first place, and that was because of this sense of belonging he had for Carcafo, the place where he was living um, in France, and he just wanted more time to say goodbye. It leaves a couple of questions about where this jet came from, its service, things like that. So it, it's right. worth your time. There's a lot in here. Um, Ian Herbert in the Mail on Sunday, page 86. He didn't want to go. It wasn't that he didn't want to go. It's, it, initially, they're saying, look, um, the Nantes owner, Vildemar um, Keita, he, he said to the McKays, who are father and son, William Mark McKay, an agent pair, um, you organise a transfer of my asset while I'm down the league. Right, I'll okay. give you 10%. Okay. And then there's another two agents involved on top of that who also got a cut. The player was not part of this conversation. Right. You know, you are my piece of fodder that I'm going to send to the farmer down the road. Okay. We're done. Uh, thanks so much, guys. Kleena Foley and Andrew McGeady. Thanks a million for uh, coming in. Sure. And uh, back next week. Off the Ball. Find us on Twitter at Off the Ball. News Talk 106 to 108.